Good morning. My name is Alex, and I serve as lead pastor here at Quirite, and I want to welcome... Oh, look at all the kids. That's so great. Turn around. Swivel your head. Look at that. That is a sight for sore eyes. So we're... Today is kind of the official relaunch of our Sunday school, and it's wonderful to see a whole bunch of families out, and... Uh, and I see some other new faces that I haven't seen in a while. So welcome. I want to add my word of welcome to what Allison said at the beginning. If you're here for the first time or you've been coming for a while, we hope that you will feel at home, start to feel comfortable here. Um, so I was ready to breathe a sigh of relief this past week. We'd gotten through three weeks of teaching on sex, marriage, and singleness as part of our series in 1 Corinthians. Before that, we dealt with a case of incest in the church in Corinth and the not-so-trendy topic of church discipline and excommunication. It's spring, so I thought we were maybe due for a feel-good sermon on tulips and puppies. But I regret to inform you <laughs> that it was not to be. At least the Leafs won last, last night. So we're stepping aside. Was there actual applause? <laughs> That's the leaf cheering section over there. <laughs> so we're stepping aside from our series in 1 Corinthians for one week to focus on a critical pastoral issue that came up briefly in chapter 7 of that book. And that issue is divorce. We touched on it a couple of weeks ago, but we didn't have time to get into it in any depth. But we really need to talk about divorce in the church, even if it's hard and we might prefer to avoid the topic. Because divorce has affected and continues to affect so many of us. So today we're going to the source. We'll be looking at what Jesus has to say about divorce in Matthew 19. And that passage is the main New Testament teaching on the subject. It's what Paul, the author of 1 Corinthians, was referring to in chapter 7. Let's pray before we open our Bibles. Dear God, we thank you that you love us and you've given us your word as a way of leading us into the life you long for us to have. So Holy Spirit, come today and make these words hum. We seek you. We come today wanting more of you. Even if we don't know what that looks like, show us more and more. Show us Jesus, we pray. Amen. So we're reading from Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 9. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And that's a quotation from Genesis 2. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. 
Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to be honest with you this morning and say that I come to this topic with some fear, some anxiousness, because I know that it is a source of pain for many of you. Whether you've gone through a divorce yourself in the past, you're going through it now, your parents went through it, or you've walked with someone close to you through a divorce. I am absolutely not wanting to pass judgment on anyone in any way as I preach on this matter. Far from it. I know that some of you have suffered terribly and would have done anything within your power to avoid divorce. I'm also aware that you may have crossed paths with Christians who think narrowly about divorce, maybe who are even harsh on the subject. They say it's just wrong, end of story. They say no Christian should ever get divorced. They make it sound even like there's no grace for those who divorce. Well, I want to be clear from the outset and say that is a lie. All of us are sinners saved by grace. We haven't all gone through divorce, but we've all got issues in our families. There's conflict and dysfunction of one kind or another. We're in that together. Our families are broken. They fall short of what God intended. As parents and children, we have hurt each other badly, and we have held on to the bitterness. As brothers and sisters, we sometimes fight and resent each other. We're jealous, and we're not willing to forgive. Marriage is hard, and family is hard. I don't want to pretend differently this morning. But the good news is that we trust that Jesus always meets us in the hard things of our lives. In 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote, To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. So Paul starts by talking to wives because the church in Corinth had a lot of women converts to Christian faith. And apparently, some of them were thinking that their newfound freedom in Christ should lead them to abandon their unspiritual husbands. And separate here means the same as divorce for us. The same rule applied to men. So where does this command come from? Well, that's what Paul is pointing to when he says, not I, but the Lord. It's from Jesus himself. And we've read it already this morning in Matthew 19. But then Paul goes on to identify an exception to that rule in verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances, God has called us to live in peace. So, 
Importantly, in the interest of peace, the Christian is not required to wait for their unbelieving spouse if that spouse has left them. Even if they once said, until death do us part, they're no longer bound by the lifelong covenant of marriage. And so this begs the question, are there other exceptions to the command Jesus gives us to never get divorced? In Matthew 19, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they test him by asking, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Jesus answers them, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. But the Pharisees were really wanting to trap Jesus. It wasn't a sincere question. So they continue. Jesus, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Which was their way of asking, but hey, didn't Jesus, didn't Moses rather tell us that we could get divorced? And they weren't wrong about that. Moses did actually say that in Deuteronomy 24. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his home, then he could divorce her. So at this point, the Pharisees think they've got Jesus cornered. But they had really no clue about how outmatched they were. You're just not going to beat Jesus in a debate about Bible knowledge. In fact, if you flip back a page, you'll see the devil tried to do that in the wilderness with Jesus in the previous chapter, and he failed. And Jesus said over and over, as he was tempted those three times, it is written. He fell back on God's word. So here Jesus says to the Pharisees, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it wasn't this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So Jesus goes back to the beginning, to God's original purpose for marriage, to the very order of creation and its goodness as God created and designed it for us to enjoy. Jesus also makes a key distinction here between a command and a concession. A command is something that shows us God's true will. It's an invitation to align ourselves with God. But a concession is something that is only permitted because we have fallen short of what God intended. So this allowance for divorce, Jesus says, was not a command. It was a concession due to our fallen nature. Now, the Pharisees would have known that distinction between a command and a concession, but they had planned to lay a trap for Jesus. Moses said that a man could divorce his wife if he found, quote, something indecent, unquote, in her. 
In the original Hebrew, that's ervat debar. Now, there was a lot of debate about that in the culture, maybe you can imagine. Something indecent that's pretty open to interpretation. And at the time of Jesus, there were two main schools of thought represented by these two influential rabbis or teachers. Rabbi Shammai was conservative and strict. For him, indecent meant sexual indecency. And so for Rabbi Shammai, Moses was saying that only if a man discovered his wife had been unfaithful, only then could he divorce her. On the other side was Rabbi Hillel and his school of thinking. He said the meaning of indecent was relative. It was fluid and it could mean really anything you didn't like about her. So Hillel was more liberal and permissive in his interpretation. So maybe she snores at night. Ervat debar. I divorce you. Maybe her cooking was indecent. Ervat debar. See you later. I'm serious. This is clearly humorous and yet terrifying if you think this is really how it worked, and it did. Hillel actually taught, we have a written record of this, that if a wife consistently burned the bread, ervat debar, divorce her. Hillel also said, if you fall out of love with her, ervat debar, divorce her. If you fall in love with someone else, ervat debar, divorce her. Now, most Jews were on the side of Hillel, at least the men were. So the Pharisees here are trying to get Jesus on record saying something that will make him extremely unpopular. Politics really haven't changed much, have they? The Pharisees even thought they could maybe get rid of Jesus completely with their scheme because not too long earlier, John the Baptist had been imprisoned and executed for speaking out against casual divorce and remarriage in the case of King Herod. So that may have been their real goal, to get Jesus killed. So how does Jesus respond? And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus takes a clear, strong stand against divorce. He sets the bar high. And it's, it's important to note here that he's partly doing this to care for and to protect women in a way that would have been radical at the time. And we've seen Paul extend that feminist ethic that's embedded in early Christianity into the Roman Empire in Corinth. And we'll talk more about that as we continue through this series. Paul points to Genesis 2 as the basis for all of this. He said it's from what God established in the beginning. He says marriage is supposed to be permanent. It's more than a relationship that gives you companionship or an ideal setting for raising children. Marriage, and we've talked about this in recent weeks, is a covenant unity that God created for two people to fuse their lives into one. 
Your bodies become one. Your finances become one. You share a legal identity, and your families and even your futures become one. Marriage is a unity that should never be severed. It's not a contract where you negotiate the terms and then can renegotiate them with the option of walking away from the deal. It's a merging of your life into their life that cannot and should not be split. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate, period. So back to the question, is it ever okay to divorce? Jesus says that divorce is not an option except in the case of sexual unfaithfulness, adultery. Why is that an exception? Well, it's because sexual unfaithfulness cancels the covenant. When someone unites themselves to someone else sexually, they've effectively destroyed the covenant. Is that the only exception? No. Some interpreters find in 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, where it refers to the serious neglect of family responsibilities, they find another exception there. And as we've seen, Paul gives an exception in 1 Corinthians 7, 15. But what if you're both believers? Because Paul was talking about an unbelieving spouse. What if you're both believers and one marriage partner leaves? Well, if your spouse leaves you, Paul would say that you should seek the support and the counsel of the church's leaders and that they would then call on that person to repent. And if the spouse who had left does not repent, then they would be considered to have nullified the covenant of marriage. What if there is technically not adultery, but one spouse is abusive? Well, in that case, you should not wait. You should leave immediately. Now, clearly, we want to be careful about how we understand this word abuse. Many scholars would say that the logic of what Jesus says here in Matthew 19 and what Paul says in 1 Corinthians would allow divorce when a spouse has canceled the covenant by getting to a place where they are unable to be lived with, especially if you and your kids are in danger due to that. We need to be clear, this doesn't mean that your spouse has become annoying or, or more annoying than usual, or you've fallen out of love with them, but it means that they've nullified the covenant through adultery or abuse or severe neglect of their responsibilities. Now, this is a huge decision, and it should only be made in consultation with a Christian counselor and, again, with the leaders of the congregation. There may be ways to seek an alternative to divorce. For example, a separation within marriage can sometimes pave the way to repentance and renewal in the marriage. In all of this, the main point is that from the beginning, God established marriage as a covenant, not as a way of ensuring our personal happiness. Divorce should really be as drastic as amputation. In some medical emergencies, you need to have a limb amputated, but that doesn't normally happen, right? I was talking to my son Callum, who's in first year at McMaster this year. He was playing basketball recently, and a friend of his twisted his ankle badly, and Callum took him to the ER. 
Imagine if they'd gone to the hospital and x-rayed his ankle and found a fracture or something. And then the nurse had told the two of them, look, the surgeon's actually really busy right now. We can't be bothered with this, so we're just going to cut off his leg. We just want to keep this simple, get it over with. Well, Callum and his friend would have freaked out at that because amputation is always a last resort. And that's how we should think of divorce and marriage. I need to stop here and talk about the church. When I said earlier that someone considering divorce should go to the church's leaders, how did you receive that? Did did that sound plausible to you? Did that sound likely? I talked to some friends this week, and there was considerable skepticism. First of all, that people would actually do that. One person said, no way someone would go to the church's leaders if they were intent on divorce. Partly that was because a lot of people just wouldn't even think of doing that. Like, how is, that, how is the church's leaders relevant to this? What does the church have to do with this? My individual decision. But it was also because they wouldn't trust the church's leaders. Someone emailed me on Friday after they'd read the description of this sermon in the email announcements that go, every week, go out every week, and, and they said this topic is a really big deal. And I really appreciated that because they also said they would be praying for me, as I hope quite a few of you are right now. I mean, I need your prayers every week as I prepare sermons. Justin and Allison do also. But this week especially, I felt the weight of this. But there was another line in in this friend of mine's email that really struck me. They wrote, the church, and here I think they were talking about the wider church, not Courtright in particular, but it certainly includes Courtright. The church has often acted in such a way that saving a marriage has seemed to be more important than caring for the people in that marriage. Now, that was, that was hard for me to read. But I think it is a totally legitimate point. There's truth and grace in this, like in all things. And we know Jesus is the embodiment, the culmination of all truth and all grace. And I think the church has sinned and sometimes sinned badly in the past by focusing on truth and not extending grace in personal ways. And we've heard stories in recent years of marital abuse that has gone unaddressed, unchallenged, and that breaks God's heart. If you can stay for talk back this morning, we're looking forward to having a really vigorous debate, discussion about these things. And I hope we can explore this question of where the church has failed and and how the church needs to both admit that, repent of that, and move into the better future that God is inviting us to embrace. But I do want to say to you today that if you're divorced and you've been hurt by the church or by people in it, that was wrong. That should never have happened. You should have been loved by the church, not judged or excluded.
And if you want to talk about that, I'd love to have a coffee with you and just listen. I must also say that I've had some incredible experiences, some of the most beautiful moments in my 12 years at Courtright. Going to someone's home and praying for a couple whose marriage has been under enormous stress. I've done that alone, and I've done that with a group of people just rallying around that couple or that individual. Don't wait until it's too late to ask for help, to ask for prayer. It could be me you come to, it could be Justin or Allison, it could be another staff person or an elder. If you're part of a small group, this is why we have small groups. And it makes sense that it would be the leader of that group or someone you've really connected with. Take the risk of opening up to them. And if you're seeing a counselor, make sure it's a Christian counselor. An old friend of mine told me recently about a time when his therapist encouraged him to consider leaving his wife because he wasn't thriving in the relationship. That is not a Christian view of marriage. He changed therapists. Make sure you're hearing truth and wisdom wherever you turn. All of us have a responsibility in this, not just the leaders, not the people going through this. Don't judge. Look, you do not know what really happened. You only have one side of the story, if you even have that. Don't gossip. Be worthy of trust. If you hear something and you know it's a rumor, don't spread it. Be a good friend to people. Don't avoid the hard stuff. Ask personal questions and ask God to give you those openings. In the end, this really is a matter of prayer. In the same way that the devil tempted Jesus in the desert, the enemy would love to tear every single marriage in this congregation apart. Let's pray that that never happens. A couple of practical questions. The first one is, how can I stay in a difficult marriage? The first thing to do is to reject the idea that your spouse should be your soulmate or some kind of a natural fit. If we pin all our hopes for a full life on our marriage partner, or on the hope of getting married, we're just dreaming the wrong dreams. If we think that our spouse, if we're married, that they should be the one to make us happy or that they should fill up our emptiness, we're wrong about marriage. Jesus is the only one who can fill you up like that. I love the way Stanley Hauerwas puts this. He says, Beware the focus on self-fulfillment that assumes marriage and the family are meant for personal fulfillment and necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate that we always marry the wrong person. Did you know that? been a romantic month, hasn't it, at court, right? Like, <laughs> but it's true. 
you're always going to marry the wrong person if you get married. We never know who we marry, we just think we do. And so the primary challenge of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Go on a date night and talk about that, why don't you? (laughs) And so in the grace of Christ and with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, God leads us on that difficult and also wonderful journey. There's nothing naive or sentimental about the Christian view of romance and marriage. Jesus says Moses offered a concession on divorce because of the hardness of our hearts. In the end, that's precisely what can destroy a marriage, our hard hearts. It's not the fighting, it's not the disappointments, the lack of passion or fulfillment. The problem is within us. Our hearts grow cold and hard from sin. But Jesus is a heart specialist. Jesus deals with our hearts. He softens them with the gospel. Tim Keller defines marriage as a lifelong monogamous relationship between a man and a woman. According to the Bible, he says, God designed marriage to reflect his saving love for us in Christ, to refine our character, to create stable human community for the birth and nurture of children, and to accomplish all of this by bringing the complementary sexes into an enduring whole life union. That, to me, is what we aspire to. Marriage is not supposed to be a cure for our unhappiness. It is supposed to be a tool that God uses to meet some of our needs and to teach us to love like Jesus. The covenant we make is made first and foremost with him. If you're having trouble loving your spouse, then I'd encourage you to pray and to ask God to give you a picture of Jesus standing right behind them. Your spouse may not be worthy of your forgiveness or your sacrifice or even your love, but Jesus is. Are you willing to trust that he can change your heart, that he can transform your marriage? And that kind of trust will always lead you to others, into caring relationships and into the loving community of the church. Second question, if I'm divorced, what does God think of me? Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. It really isn't. In Jeremiah 3, God says, for all her adulteries, I give faithless Israel a certificate of divorce. And what God means by that is he says that he's actually divorced himself. He's in solidarity with all who are divorced. Maybe your divorce was wrong. Maybe you realize that now and you feel guilt and regret that haunts you. But in the cross and the resurrection, Jesus forgives the sin you've done and he offers healing for the sin done to you. Let me say that again. Through the cross and the resurrection of Christ, Jesus forgives the sins you've done and he offers healing for the sins done to you. He takes all of that, all that pain, he takes it on himself. He bore our sins in his body on the cross 
And when we believe that he died for us, God transfers our sin, our guilt, our regret to Jesus, and we receive his righteousness and his rest. The resurrection of God is overturning the curse of death that was caused by sin, whether ours or someone else's, and it's infusing the power of new life. Maybe you made some big mistakes in your marriage, even committed terrible sins. You can't change that now. And those mistakes do not mean God is done with you. As I was wandering around the house this morning, I heard Lily singing a song um, that we've done at court right. It's entitled, Do It Again. And I love the chorus of that song. And it goes like this. It, It says, you make a way where there is no way. And I believe you're going to do it again. That's the amazing grace of Jesus. All of us, we're all sinners in need of a Savior. So as you head into this coming week, ask the Holy Spirit how, having received that grace, you can now extend it to others. Whether that's a member of your family, your spouse, a friend, or maybe it's you yourself. And as we come to this table, this table of grace this morning, leave behind your regrets and mistakes. Come today because there is no reason to wait. You're invited. Jesus is calling. Bring your sorrows and let's trade them for joy. Amen.